our hearts are broken with this diagnosis. I'm not trying to play it off like I'm fine, but I'm able to not have all this weight on my shoulder. It feels surreal. That is just completely gone. What's completely gone? That existential fear. (gasps) And then during the session, honestly, I was so happy. I could not stop smiling. And I was so happy. I had this joy that was just across my chest. Like the best moments of my life would be that same feeling I had, full body joy, full body love. And so even though I was going through some really hard things and I was crying, I was still so happy. Mm. And I was just really reminded that no matter what is going on in the world, in my life, that is still in me. And just to be is such a gift and so hard to do when you have a diagnosis like this to not have your head and your body in two different places Mm -hmm. and that's definitely been the biggest gift is that I'm able to finally connect to the present moment Welcome to season four of the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa Laudico, and this is our last series of the season where we explore the potential benefits of a psychedelic medication called psilocybin to relieve the distress, anxiety, and depression that so many of us living with metastatic breast cancer can feel. It's a series that combined the scientific breakthroughs of Road to a Cure with the potentially transformative emotional work covered in our Grief and Loss and End of Life series. And along with co-host Linda Weatherby and Dr. Paula Jane, I'm excited to bring it to you. Thank you, Lisa. In our first episode, we talked with researcher and psychiatrist Dr. Bodhi Dunlop about the science of psilocybin-assisted therapy. Today, we turn to the patient perspective. What is it actually like to go through the experience of psilocybin-assisted therapy? As a reminder, the vast majority of cancer patients in the U.S. today are barred from legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy because of how psilocybin is currently scheduled under the DEA. After several months of looking, we were able to locate and speak with two women with breast cancer who obtained legal access to the treatment. Journalist and writer Erica Rex participated in a clinical trial at Johns Hopkins after being diagnosed with early-stage breast cancer. We also speak with Mari Singfeld, a young Canadian woman living with MBC who gained access through an exemption process facilitated by the organization Theracil. Theracil helps Canadian citizens facing advanced illness to utilize either an exemption or a special access program to gain legal access to medically supervised psilocybin treatment. In the U.S., there is currently no exemption process, although in our next episode, we'll talk about a current legal case to create one. You can learn more about Theracil and existing clinical trials in our episode notes. 
In our conversations today, we asked both women to share the process that they went through to gain access, what the treatment was actually like for them, and then what, if anything, changed in their lives afterwards. We had the wonderful opportunity to speak with Mari twice, once before her experience to capture her hopes for it, and then again after. So here's Lisa and Mari to start us off. I would love to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are beyond psilocybin and beyond NBC, beyond all of that. <laughs> I'd love to hear more about you. Mm-hmm. I um, would love to share that. I love to sing. I'm a singer and I studied classical music when I was younger and then actually started my undergrad degree in jazz music. My partner plays guitar and we have a little band together, plays blues a lot. And we actually had been planning on getting married before my diagnosis. And we got engaged right after I was diagnosed in the fall. And I have actually been doing my uh, master's degree in, in counseling psychology. So I'm finishing up in May and then I'll be starting my practicum. I'm not sure where I'd like to specialize, but I'd absolutely like to work with women in dealing with breast cancer diagnosis and hopefully one day be trained to do some um, psilocybin treatment so that I'll be uh, on the other side, hopefully if it all goes well. well, But yeah, that's me. Congratulations. Like, congratulations. The (laughs) wedding, the engagement, the graduate school, all of it. So fantastic. We were wondering if if you're comfortable, it would be wonderful to hear what led you to be interested in the therapeutic use of psilocybin for yourself. So I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer in 2019. I had a giant eight centimeter tumor in left breast and had no family history of breast cancer. And I went through treatment for that and had a double mastectomy. And then two years later, in 2021, I had all of a sudden this like pain in my spine that I felt like I couldn't even hold a glass of water or stand up straight. It was just all of a sudden. And it was a compression fracture because the cancer had metastasized to my spine my skull, my hip and ribs. And I've been going through treatment for that. I had never had experience with psilocybin before it came into my life during cancer. I was always just really interested because when I was hearing stories of people having experiences with psilocybin, it was like, that changed my life. That changed how I see things. That um, was a huge breakthrough point for me. Another big part of my initial interest is that I have been struggling with depression before I was diagnosed with cancer and then I had cancer then it was like of course you're depressed (laughs) and then after my first diagnosis I started just following the work being done by MAPS Canada so that's the multidisciplinary Canadian Psychedelics Association and there's also one of course in the states with Rick Doblin and was just so amazed by all of the research coming out of there. So I started doing a little bit of like graphic design work for maps just to 
learn a bit more and understand that community. And then after being diagnosed again with metastatic breast cancer, I just was really drawn to it. This is something that I'm going to need to do. This is something that's going to be part of my journey. I was really interested in Theraso and have been following them as well. They work a lot with MAP. They made it really easy to apply and um, lucky enough to have it granted. And my therapist that I have been working with for some time is actually trained through Theraso as well. Already having that relationship is really helpful. That sounds great. You already answered our question of how did you find Theracil, but can you take us through what did it take for you to actually get approval? The process for me was, and that was Theracil and heard about eligibility. And then I got a sign-off from my nurse practitioner that I work with through Ottawa Integrative Health Centre. She's really interested in psilocybin treatment and has been following research to see in the letter said that she would like me to be getting this treatment, which is a necessary part of the application. You need a doctor or a nurse practitioner to that, that, that you're requiring a special exemption. And from there, Sarah still submitted my application for me. And then I heard back probably a month after that I had been accepted and it was just through now. So Honestly, my process seems to be unique compared to most. So it's not a seamless process. And, and Theracil is literally doing everything that they can legally to make it as simple as possible for us to get these exemptions. Like, I'm having a hard time recalling the process just because they did so much of it for me. But you get approved, and then they would provide a list of healthcare providers that mm -hmm. are approved and trained to, to do so they're making sure that you're set up with the right people, professionals. Mm -hmm. I am curious. I've been hearing that Health Canada is holding applications up. Those of us in the States are going, wow, Canada's the promised land. They're doing it. And yeah. maybe it's not entirely true. Health Canada changed the rules right after I had applied. So. Some of the new things that you're hearing about people being rejected and everything that actually fell right after my application. So I slid in to being accepted. But the same day I got accepted, a bunch of healthcare providers got denied access mm -hmm. to give the treatment. So it's really inconsistent. And they do ask if you're able to source your psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And that whole part of it is just really confusing because they're approving you to do this medicine, but you can't actually get the medicine from anyone but a drug dealer. <laughs> so it's, it's still a messy process. My first question, doesn't Theracil have the synthetic psilocybin that they're using? Well, if I understand correctly, they I only facilitate the process. They don't actually hold <laughs> it. That's You're really important. Own. Yeah. Hmm. What is the process that you're using to even locate a source? So I have gotten it from, yeah, a drug dealer. That's how I get it. There's a, a storefront now in Ottawa that's selling them. They're illegal, but it was like how they did it with cannabis. 
there were dispensaries before the dispensaries were legal. So they're just operating illegally. I'm not sure how that works, but I've been in there and uh, we'll probably source it from there for the treatment. Okay. Have you, have you? In the past, I have had experiences with it. Oh, okay. So this is not your first experience with psilocybin, but it'll be your first experience that's guided with your therapist. Yeah. So I did it for the first time, probably just last year, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you feel Uh, comfortable sharing what that was like? Totally. Yeah. So I've done it just like a handful of times. I used it as a therapeutic treatment for myself where I took like moderately high dose, but not too high. And I took it in the afternoon and I just relaxed and had my journal with me and listened to some music and worked through some stuff. And it's just like a weight lifted. And I think that's partially because you're able to finally let go of some stuff. And that's really hard to do without, you know, a therapist or, you know, a therapist with doing it over the course of 10 sessions or more. And I have found my motivation higher and my spirits lifted. Absolutely. It's been such an interesting process for us to learn more about this and to see how it's just so helpful. So what are you expecting to be different with the guided experience versus the experience that you've had last year when you were able to take psilocybin at home? Mm -hmm. I think that I could absolutely benefit from intention setting ahead of time and the integration having a therapist work with me on really narrowing it down so it's meaningful for me is the biggest difference. I might be able to get a lot more out of it with that pre and post work and being able to bring it to the therapist after and just having that space, that non-judgmental space to bring it to. Because I, of course, feel like I'm a little woo-woo for doing <laughs> And my friends probably just obviously they don't get it like you lady <laughs> like we get it much more you talk um, a little yeah. bit more what you feel like they're not getting I don't think that other people get the like desperation and I do think that this is part of my healing and that my depression is a big component that I need to continue to work on to feel better obviously people can relate to that component but the desperation really comes from that like end of life distress that unfortunately is, is unique to age four diagnosis. Part of just wanting to do, you know, so much with the time you're given, but then struggling with all of the fear that um, comes with the diagnosis. So it's this balance of knowing time is so precious, but also being fearful of that. And I hope to have some sort of a breakthrough there in in letting some fear go absolutely yeah you can't see us but we're all nodding at you with lots of love on our face yes because we're all you know like we we all get that and that's what the trials seem to show is that Mm -hmm. there is a decrease in distress for sure yeah for sure 
And you mentioned a little prior that friends and families, they just don't get it sometimes. Are you open with your friends and family that this is what you're doing in the next couple of weeks and why? There's definitely still some stigma there, especially with some of my family. My friends are much more open about it and, and are supportive and interested in me doing it. So everyone reacts differently. My partner's super supportive and he's really interested in all the research that's been going on. And yeah, he's been a great support. That is really exciting. I'm very excited for you. I'm really excited for you. That's great. Yes, I might actually be doing it with someone else. I think she has metastatic breast cancer as well. Yeah, I don't think the other patient has legal exemption. So that's obviously part of the issue is that she may have the exact same diagnosis as me and not have access to this. And so I imagine there are a lot of people who are just doing these treatments without their cell, which I completely understand. And that's what we have to keep working towards because it's not just cancer patients who need this either. Yeah, there's so many people that could benefit. So Mari, you said that you qualified, you met the criteria. Would you feel comfortable sharing with us what it was that helped you to meet that criteria? I think that it's diagnosis and that I don't have any psychiatric predispositions. Um, that's something they screen for. So say if someone had severe schizophrenia, then it would be that. It, it's really screening out severe psychosis. And I think another thing that might be a criteria, but that I have tried multiple things for the distress. I've tried, you know, medicine, I've tried therapy, I've done all of these things without luck. So that's, I think, part of Health Canada's exemption is that you have to show that you've tried what is already out there. Thank you so much. Your answer prompted a follow-up question by Linda. I'm just wondering, we know there's a, there's a lot of people obtaining this therapy in the United States in the underground and you're being very thoughtful and methodical about how you will do your guided trip. I wonder if other people mm -hmm. just jump in and what are the risks yeah. of, you know, does it make sense? Definitely. I think there's always the risk of a bad trip. You can feel like you're dying and not really be able to snap out of that. So that's where the guide is really helpful and having someone who's obviously not on terms to be able to talk you through that. And that's like the biggest red flag for anyone doing it without kind of supervision. Super important point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I completely understand why people, they, they don't have the luxury of waiting for all these loopholes and for the legislature to change. Right. Yeah, it is bad. Because there are so many, especially with so many healthcare providers are trying to get trained in it as well. And even that is, is difficult. I do know that there are healthcare providers who are trained, but then they don't have the exemption through Health Canada. So they have all of the requirements. They have gone through the safe therapy training program, but then they aren't legally allowed. So then there's this underground world where people are just going ahead with it and still working with therapists. But I'm sure there are tough people who are obviously not working with therapists too, because the quote Parasil told me was the first time it was easily be $2,000 for all that therapy treatment. 
And that's not covered by Health Canada, even though you're officially approved by Health Canada? No, it would still only be covered under my private insurance. So I have, you know, $500 for therapy a year and the integration sessions could be covered there, but not all of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Good, but they're still not there. (laughs) They're They're doing good for the headlines. They're really good with the news headlines. And then once you actually understand what they're doing, it's like, (laughs) that's really helping anyone. Well, they're sort of doing better than the United States. Well, yeah, (laughs) that's true. At least that's available as an option. I guess the only other thing I would ask, Mari, going into it, do you have any fears or hesitations about the process at all? No, I really don't because I'm with my therapist. I'm comfortable. If things go wrong, I know that she'll be there. Whereas in the handful of times I've done it, likely recreationally, I have much more fear because what if I do have a bad trip? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just excited to learn more. Yeah. I feel like learn more about myself is cheesy, but it is just like being able to finally sit with my thoughts and just, you know, let go of some stuff. And if it can reduce anxiety around end of life and existential distress, it's almost a miracle that a session could do that. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Mari, overall, really just so grateful to you for your time. And please keep us posted. We would love to do another interview with you after you finish and completed your integrated guided experience. So if is that something that you would be open to? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So we'll just keep in touch. And wow, you're a trailblazer on so many levels. Thank you. Thank you so much for the time. And I'm excited. We'll be in touch once I get this book. Yes. All right. Good. Good luck. Good luck to you. Yeah, Mary. good luck. Thank Mary. you so much. I was able to speak with Maury again a week after her psilocybin-assisted therapy experience. When we both got onto the Zoom, however, it was immediately apparent that things had changed. Maury had lost all of her hair. Then, as she talked, it became apparent that she had received a new and very difficult diagnosis. What follows is less of an interview and more of an opportunity to simply be present with Maury as she processed both the profound change in her prognosis and her experience with psilocybin. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> we really appreciate it. I'm happy, I'm happy to share my experience. And yeah. I, yes, my breast cancer story has actually changed, unfortunately, a bit. I'm this new do, so I'll explain that too. But yeah, okay. I do have two dogs with me. I was hoping they would be with their father. But, well, hopefully that a native, my dog is probably, I'm just going to put him on my lap because then. Okay, absolutely. There's Fitz. Hello, Fitz. Okay. And I've been going through treatment until two weeks ago. I've been dealing with nausea and vomiting unexplained, even which I was associating with some medications I was taking and supplements, trying to figure all that out. And it turned out 
that it had metastasized again to my liver and my brain. Sorry. Yeah, so it has been a really difficult uh, few weeks. The The brain side of it is it's in the blood-brain barrier. It's called, I think, I honestly, I told my partner I was going to Google how to say this before and I didn't. Okay. Leptomeningeal, I think, disease. Okay. Um, where the cancer is in the fluid in the blood-brain barrier. Yeah. So I did five treatments of radiation on the brain for that. Up until then, I've been working on my master's in counseling psychology to be a psychotherapist. And I was to start my practicum a few weeks ago. So I didn't start that. And I'm hoping that one day I can, you know, be a therapist and help other people. But right now, blinders are on, all energy is going and healing and figuring out what we can do to fight this. The brain part of it is there's no treatment. The timing couldn't be better in terms of my psilocybin treatment. The existential distress was on a whole other level, so it was really needed. We've started treatment of a chemo that should be helping the liver and and we're looking at all the options um, possible. Yeah. So that's where I'm at right now. That's a lot to, to process. How are you processing it? How are you <laughs> making sense of it? If you had asked me before my psilocybin experience, it would be a much different answer. Mm-hmm. I am really hopeful. I am still this life force and I still have so much within me that I don't understand how I could be that close to the end of my life mm-hmm. and I really trying to connect to my own intuition and my own listening to my body because I've been able to know ahead of time before diagnosis of like wherever whenever my cancer has spread yeah and so I'm trying to tap into that and understand what I need to do to heal and use that connection I talk a lot about with my partner about you know false hope and feeling stupid about ignoring what my doctor told me but I'm still going through the treatments and I'm still doing everything I can but I'm also reminding myself that there's still so much information that I can gather about my own body and there is still a lot of room for hope and that's what I'm really holding on to. Yeah. You had mentioned before your psilocybin experience, it would have been a totally different answer. Do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about what that answer would have been? Yeah, I was really stuck on the prognosis. So I was given months. I, yeah, I was given months and I was having really bad vertigo before the radiation treatments. And that really scared me. And so the combination of the prognosis and then just not having control over my brain and feeling like my head is spinning all the time, I was doubting, I was doubting like the ability to have any hope. I wasn't able to see that at all. 
And anytime I would feel hopeful, I would just go back to, oh, but you are only given months. Mm-hmm. And I think a big part of the psilocybin treatment is it gave me the ability to see past it and to understand that there's more than those stats and that it is the average. And there is, again, so much out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just, it's so hard. They ask you, do you want to know the prognosis? Yeah. And obviously you don't, but as soon as you Google leptomeningeal disease, you see it right away. When I was telling people, I wasn't even giving that. I said it metastasized to my brain and I didn't even want to put the disease in there because I knew that they would Google it. Yeah. And, and I didn't want it to be real. But I think what came out of the psilocybin experience was accepting that this is the reality, but it's not written in stone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seems a little odd then to say, what feelings did you have going into the trip? Because it, you had just gotten devastating news just two weeks prior, right? Or just a week prior? A week prior. So I actually had to move the date I did it. So originally I was supposed to do it with three other women Uh who have uh, metastatic breast cancer. But I was doing radiation, so I wasn't able to make it. Okay. So I won't speak to their experience, but I will say I have heard from them. And their experiences were all similar to mine. Incredible. Wow. And they all within the next day would say they would 100% do it again. (laughs) My experience ended up being last Wednesday instead of like a week after when I was supposed to do it. And it was just in my home. My therapist came here. Yeah. To do it with me. Yeah. And I think your question was my feelings going into it. I was, again, really hopeful I I knew it was what I needed. And I was waking up every morning just with, honestly, I think I was nauseous. I was throwing up all the time. And I think it was just anxiety in the end. Like, I was just felt so scared. And you have no control. Yeah. Scared of the diagnosis? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not the experience. So I knew I was so hopeful that would be alleviated and that I would be able to find joy in life again. Yeah. Because I'm feeling like all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so much to carry. Yeah. So we were talking about your feelings before going into it. Do you want to talk a little bit about the actual day? Yeah. So I did this with my therapist, who I've been seeing for years. She's trained through Theracil. And beforehand, we set some intentions. And my intentions were really about connecting to intuition. My questions were kind of, what does my body need me to know? How can I be at peace? Which goes with kind of that existential distress and just waking up feeling awful those were my two real focuses and she did remind me because she had just done this with the other women the week before that the intentions are 
kind of placeholder, but it might take you somewhere completely different. For me, it didn't. I did actually align with my intentions. And so we revisited them before doing the plant medicine. Well, just to be clear, you guys had sessions before the actual added trip to talk about what it is that you wanted to get out of the session. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then so during the session, we talked about the attentions that we had set. And she asked me to bring something to read. And I brought my Mary Oliver's poem, Wild Geese. And it's just that I don't think it's the first line, but you don't have to be good. And that was a theme for me. Mm-hmm. And, and it was very fitting. That is what stuck out because <laughs> I wasn't like a bad kid, <laughs> but I really held myself to this kind of crazy standard mm-hmm. and of almost this like perfection level, which I would never think I'm a perfectionist when you look at it in a different light. It's so different, but yeah, being good and not having people mad at me, that was another theme that came up for me was protecting other people mm-hmm. and keeping this idea of being good, of being, yeah, perfect, I guess, in mm-hmm. some way. So we read the poem and she had a few readings. My partner was here, my fiance, so we talked a bit with him too, with us, and then he went away. He was on the stairs. So it was nice that he was part of that beginning piece and just talked about what it could be dark she prefaced that it can get really dark and her job is to if it's dark there's a reason for it you have to go into that and do the work and see what is coming up and what the meaning is around it Mm -hmm. and the women who had done their experience had more dark experiences actually than I had so I wasn't too nervous about that, I think, because they had already done it. And so they had come out of it and been okay, that it wasn't too awful for them or anything. And then we did the plant medicine. So I did five grams of psilocybin. And then I had a face mask on and uh, a playlist that Mm -hmm. is curated for the trip and just going back for a second just to remind the listeners that you actually had to source your own psilocybin yeah so you actually had mushrooms actual physical mushrooms that you took i took yeah they were actually in capsules okay yeah so i took five grams and then i put my face mask on laid down and my therapist was there if i needed to talk or if i you know was having a hard time or anything after about an hour and a half I wasn't feeling anything Mm. so I took more they ended up taking up to nine grams wow which is really not normal most people some people can take three and they have their experiences but I wasn't feeling anything in the past when I have done psilocybin 
I have a really high tolerance. My fiance is three times the size of me and he takes two and that's enough. Yeah. So it's so weird how um, different it is and talking to my therapist about it, how it may have just been really hard for me to let go. Sounds a little frustrated. But then I got there eventually. It was probably two and a half hours until I was at that spot of being able to completely let go. So an yeah. hour after you took the second dose. Yeah. Yeah. My therapist hasn't seen that before. So that's really unusual. And yeah. So one of the first things that came up for me was honestly, I was so happy. Mm. She said she has never seen someone with the smile like I had. I could not stop smiling. And I was so happy. I had this joy that was just across my chest. Like the best moments of my life would be that same feeling I had. And I just kept coming up that this is available to me whenever I want. I love that. that. I'm so glad you had that. Yeah. And that just kept coming up and coming up. And so even though I was going through some really hard things and I was crying, I was still so happy. Mm. And I was just really reminded that no matter what is going on in the world, in my life, that is still in me. And that is still there to tap on whenever I want. Yeah. Your resources spoke up. Yeah, exactly. And then something that came up for me was my like drinking habits when I was in university and after university, my first job and stuff, I would always drink and blackout, which was obviously awful. And I didn't have much control over it. And what came up for me was that I felt like to be fun and to be free and to be reckless or silly or anything I couldn't tap into that without alcohol and and that kind of goes back to the being good and how I really wanted to be this carefree person but without alcohol it wasn't able to Mm -hmm. and so I black out and act just completely out of how I would want to act. I would do things that I'd hate the next day and I'd hate myself the next day and then I'd do it again. But it was like a path trying to get you to, to who you wanted to be. Yeah. And without it, I felt like if I did skinny dip in a lake and I wasn't drunk, then that was stupid or that was reckless and that was acting crazy. And what I learned from that, all of that, was that I obviously don't need alcohol to be fun and to be crazy and to do things that might not have a reason and just might be fun. And again, that's available to me whenever, whenever I want. Something else that came up, so funny, (laughs) just these little things that are in your memory. But when I was in residence, there was one night that I wasn't drinking and my girlfriends were and this funny DJ song, like a house music kind of song came on and it was really funny. And I made all the girls do this dance that I called the fireball. 
And so it was like six girls in this room. The girls were standing on the bed. <laughs> and like, it was just so funny. And we ended up doing this dance over and over again through the years. And a few months ago, my best friend reminded me, she said, remember Fireball, you are Fireball. That's still in you. And that really stood out to me because I just didn't feel like that person anymore. And especially because I wasn't drinking anymore and I wasn't going out and I'm not really the fun person to be with with all this cancer stuff. So it's so funny that that came up and that that's, again, still available to you and that's still within you. That fun, carefree person is waiting for me to act on it almost. And again, like I was just grinning ear to ear remembering this and telling my therapist about it, about how amazing those memories are and how I'm getting married in a few weeks. And on my bachelorette, we will be doing the fireball dance. (laughs) That's wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) So it's just so funny that something that's I haven't thought about in a while uh, is still so meaningful to my life yeah so that really stood out so what would happen was I'd have my mask on and then I'd have something like I really wanted to talk about the drinking so I took my mask off and told my therapist about the drinking and the connections I was making there and she like would write stuff down so we'll revisit it when I meet with her next and she'd be like this is something you might want to go back in and think about and see what comes up so the next kind of part was really about going back to that perfectionist Mm -hmm. keeping it all together for everyone else i was called beforehand before my most recent diagnosis to ask me to bring someone to my appointment especially the hospital they are still very strict with COVID and people coming in so I knew that this was not a fun appointment that I was going into and I almost didn't tell anyone and my fiance would have been heartbroken if I had done that to him because it's our life and he is there for me he's wanting to be there it's just in my mind that I've tried to protect them Whereas everyone wants to be there. Everyone wants to help me. And I'm not giving them the opportunity to. Do you know what's behind that? What you were thinking at this time? I think I carry other people's emotions. And I want to fix other people's emotions. And then, you know, in school to be a therapist, I... that's why therapists have therapists yes exactly (laughs) and that's I think something I've always had with my family with my parents when people would argue I'd try to soften the blow I'd make a joke I would feel responsible for smoothing everything out And I feel the same with my partner. I feel the same with my friends. I put off telling a lot of people with this most recent diagnosis because 
I knew people would be upset. Mm-hmm. And even when you're telling people, it's it's so hard not to go. But right, like okay, and I make it safer. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, in terms of like my intention of what does my body mean? My body needs support from every hand that's willing to help. Mm-hmm. And that is just surrendering to that and letting go of the need to manage everyone's emotions because I have more than enough on my own to take care of. And I have so much support. And that was the next piece that kept coming up in that joy that I was feeling is how loved I am. I am so loved. And I'm so fortunate for the amazing people I have in my life that I'm not giving them enough credit. And I always think, I said this, I think from the beginning in my first diagnosis is when people reach out, it's so nice and it's so kind. And I just kept picturing a trust phone. I think of the Big Girls movie where they're doing it. And you just more and more people there to just hold you when you fall. And it's, it's easy to hold you up when there's hundreds of people there. Yeah. And it's, and it's totally capable. And for my partner too, it's important for me to trust him to carry me through this and for him to also have all of these people to support him. And so that was really big is that just how much love there is for both of us and how much support that we both have to get through it. Yep. Had you had that sense of love prior or was it different during the trip? Was it more intense? Was it more available? It was much, much more intense. And I just wasn't aware of it, I guess. I I know I'm loved. It's so obvious, but... It was a a full body love. It was just really acknowledging it and accepting it to a whole different degree. I'm trying not to put words in your mouth. So this is a genuine question. But do you feel like the trip helped you move it from a, I know I love, like in my head, I know, to where you could actually feel it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even with my parents, I have amazing parents that live near us and you know they offer everything and I still hold backs and I was still holding back so much in terms of the support that they were willing to give and that was just again going back to trying to do this the right way and trying to be perfect I got this diagnosis and I didn't even cry I, my partner did, and I wanted to support him. Yeah. And that's where my head goes right away is that protective kind of instinct, I guess. Yeah. And that if I were upset as well, then it would just make it harder for everyone. But of course I'm upset. So that, like, when you're talking about that, you don't have to be good, like you actually are allowed to feel to be human to not always be the one you're nodding yeah. I don't want to make sure I'm not again putting words no absolutely mouth. absolutely 
Yeah, that's it. Wish my dog snoring. <laughs> yeah, that's such a comforting sound. I think when our pet snooze near us. Yeah, yeah. So those were three huge gifts already. It sounds like from the job. Yeah, I think that those were really my main takeaways, my main lessons, and. I guess a fourth piece was that I just really believe that I'm choosing to believe that this isn't it for me Mm -hmm. and that there's still so much that I'm going to do that the doctors can do. And I'm choosing to be hopeful if it's false hope. I don't care. I'm choosing to live in the mentality that we just don't know yet what's going to work. So we're going to try everything and that hope. I honestly keep waiting for it to go away. I'm like, is it going to fade? Because it feels surreal. That is just completely gone. What's completely gone? That existential fear. Mm. Just to go back for a second before you got to do the psilocybin and there's only a week between you getting this news and you doing this trip but it sounds like that week was pretty miserable yeah in terms of waking up devastated throwing up all of that and has any of that been there since the trip not at all not at all no and you know just waking up It was waking up wishing I could go back to sleep Mm. because that was the only piece I got. You know, it was taking medication to sleep. So that has just completely changed. During the trip, I know that sometimes when people who are metastatic have done these trips, some of them actually experience their own deaths in multiple different ways, which for many ends up being healing. Did you have anything like that? No. I didn't. I was aware of that possibility and I didn't have that experience at all. Mm -hmm. And some people don't and still have a power. Just from your own experience, it sounds like basically you just kept getting reminded of all of these resources. Yeah. Within yourself and in your community and not only in a thinking cognitive way, but feeling them deep down. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, yeah, full body joy, full body love throughout. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also that gift of it's okay to be human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I think that that piece was that it's okay to be human and, and just letting go of that perfectionist and that was another intention in that of what do I need to let go of and just to be is such a gift and so hard to do when you have a diagnosis like this to not have your head and your body in two different places mm-hmm. and that's definitely been the biggest gift is that I'm able to finally connect to the present moment It's so hard because when you're not in that place and social worker after social worker, group after group tell you 
that's the way to deal with being men static is to live in the present moment. Sometimes you just want to, you know, yeah. say you be in my position and tell me how to be in the present moment. But Absolutely. Like- Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. I, prior to this, I'm not someone who is very spiritual. It's so not who I was before. And thank God I have changed, you know, in such a better place mentally because of it. I'm still on medication for depression and everything, but that obviously goes back to the living at the present moment. It's so hard to do when you don't have really much desire to be in the present moment because it's so dark and everything that the present moment has brought you isn't, you know, you don't understand how it is serving you. It's so hard to get through that. And especially when people just telling you, be in the present moment. You're right. <laughs> It'll yeah. fix all your problems. <laughs> so many books that tell me the same thing over and over again. But yeah, the kind of going through this process and having this trip is what my partner says. It's like laying a fresh or a fresh layer of snow you're not stuck in the tracks anymore and ruminating on these little things ruminating on the prognosis mm-hmm. you can get so stuck and that's that's depression it's, it's getting stuck in these patterns and and then with a diagnosis you're stuck on the stats and everything that that means you're stuck on the side effects and it's so powerful that that can be lifted through plant medicine it's incredible yeah and you had been doing therapy and medicine for the depression prior so could you talk a little bit about how the guided trip the psilocybin assisted therapy kind of feels different like you you were doing what you're supposed to do right you get a depression diagnosis you take meds you do the work in therapy and how the outcome was different from doing that compared to doing this trip. Yeah, it's so interesting because in therapy and obviously with cancer patients, it's different, but you're trying to find kind of the conflicts in how you're acting and how you think you should act or how you're acting and how you want to act. Mm-hmm. And I want to be living in the moment, but I'm terrified of the future is, is so common. And there is the magic in the plant medicine is that you are just lifted out of that space and you can finally, because you can acknowledge it over and over again in therapy. I know I need to exercise, but I'm not getting off the couch because I'm much happier watching TV all day. Mm-hmm which is honestly how I've been coping with my diagnosis. And when you're given this new perspective, it's real. You're kind of lifted out of the patterns that you've been doing over and over again, and you're given new perspective, and you're able to finally action these steps forward based on what's come up for you during the trip. And in therapy, it can happen. Obviously, therapy can work magic too but it takes so much time and we go back to old patterns over and over again and 
we're such creatures of habit and comfort. And the plant medicine can push you forward finally to make these changes that you know you've needed forever. So in a really concrete way, like it's in some ways an unfair comparison because it's only been two weeks since you got the diagnosis of lepto and spread to your liver. But like, but what has been different since your trip? Like when you wake up in the morning, what's been different in that week prior <laughs> yeah. to the trip and then the week after? Yeah. So I want to wake up. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to wake up. I'm not waking up thinking about having months to live with the hope that I gained from the experience. I'm so motivated in terms of all the changes that I can be making to help heal this cancer. Mm -hmm. And at one point I was, you know, not wanting to maybe not wanting, I still really wanted to marry my fiance, but it's hard to be marrying someone with months to live. And again, I was, you know, asking him, do you want to still get married? Because I was protecting him again. Mm-hmm. And then that is just totally gone. We're getting married because we love each other. Mm-hmm. And we're doing everything we can because we do, we are hopeful. Mm-hmm. I'm so much more motivated to live my life yeah, and to live my life with this disease too, mm-hmm. that it's not the end. I'm adjusting my idea of what my life is and making it as joyful and as hopeful as I possibly can. And I'm motivated to do that because I'm reminded how loved I am, how this joy I have is still in me and I'm still this life force who who isn't falling into a stat and it's almost like I had this anxiety around people I felt awkward I knew I was hyper aware of what my presence might mean to other people and how awkward cancer can be for other people and everything else and that's just been lifted from me and that weight of worrying about everyone else and how it might affect them and everything like everything associated with that it's been lifted so that I'm able to be in the moment and to just again be is like so it's such a simple phrase but it is so hard to get there and it sounds like ironically that kind of removing that worry of protecting other people allows you to actually be with them and to let them in yeah exactly Exactly. So we've talked before, you've done some prior trips at lower doses. So was this trip, did it feel different in a significant way? And if so, how? Yes. So it was much different. It was so much more medicine than times I've done it before. Especially that fully being able to let go and just be in the trip. I just keep going back to that like full body joy and that full body love experience was just a whole other level. Yeah. Did it make it different at all to have the therapist there with you? Yeah, definitely. And she helped because when I would stop and talk to her and 
about what I was dealing with, she also was able to make connections to stuff we had talked about before. And that was really helpful as well as picking out places that might need more attention almost. And then going back into that and doing the work. And I didn't have much like visual, but some people will really see a lot with their eyes on and especially with the experiencing their death. And it, and I've heard that where it's without the therapist there or with the therapist there, they're like, I don't want to go back there. I that's so dark. I don't want to go there. And the therapist is like, you're doing this trip or this experience to work through this. It's coming up for a reason. Mm-hmm. I'm here with you. That is a really important part. And also having someone to take notes of what is coming up. It's really helpful. So that piece is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested because we talked about in the beginning fear of death and that kind of existential distress. And you've talked about hope and how hopefully your death is many years away. When you think about it, whenever it comes, has how you thought about it changed at all? I'm not. So so crazy, but I'm not scared to die mm-hmm. anymore. And I think it's more of like a spiritual understanding that I've kind of adopted and my partner too, which has been really, I think, healing for both of us is that we believe that there's more to life after death and accepting that and believing that has been, yeah, it's like a comfort for us is that when it does come, there'll be it's the next adventure mm-hmm. that's huge mm-hmm. i'm not sure there's anything more central to the human experience than grappling with our eventual mortality truly yeah. and yeah. we don't talk about it enough but it's it shows up in so many ways in many days of our lives and yeah when i was being interviewed for my practicum which i did too mm-hmm. then i was asked what theories or speak to me and I hadn't talked about having uh, metastatic breast cancer yet and I was naive enough to think I wasn't going to talk about it in my interview but she said what theories are you interested in and then I was like existential theory and she was like I'd never hear that and so she said why and I was like oh my own existential crisis (laughs) right away but it's al- that's almost like another piece to it is that we're just aware of it because we have these diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Before the diagnosis, what did we think? That it was never going to happen. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that we were the only person ever to not to die. Exactly. And yeah, and so, you know, dealing with that head on is sometimes the best way to move past it. So with that, Thinking of other people living with metastatic disease, do you have advice or things that you'd want to say directly to them about your kind of experience with psilocybin-assisted therapy? I think that it is an amazing medicine for people who are dealing with that existential distress and so fearful that they're not able to live as they wish. And 
it is so powerful and it can be so dark and I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to ignore that at all. It just wasn't my experience, but it can be, there's that light at the end of the tunnel. It, it is so powerful in terms of what it can bring you and what it can heal. I said earlier about being nervous to get married and I feel like I watched so many videos on like Facebook and sobbed at stage four cancer woman getting married. And I'm that and that realization is so just heartbreaking. And our hearts were, our hearts are broken with this diagnosis. I'm not trying to play it off. I'm fine. Now that you're telling it's trip. But I'm able to not have all this weight on my shoulder of what it means for everyone else. It's just, I mean, accepting it isn't the right word, but I guess acknowledging it to a certain degree that you're able to live in the moment and find joy again. Because what happens with this diagnosis is that whenever there is joy, it's like, you're reminded of the diagnosis and you see that dark cloud right over you and, you know, ruins that moment because it might be a last or, mm-hmm. but if it's the last, then let it be good. Yeah. Don't let the diagnosis steal the days and the moments that we had. Exactly. Yeah. So easy to say. You know, there's still work to be done, but finding peace through plant medicine is possible and it can make it a lot easier. As promised, here's our conversation with another individual who had legal access to psilocybin-assisted therapy, in this case, through a clinical trial in the United States. Erica Rex is an award-winning journalist who has brought her impressive 20-plus years of medical and journalistic experience to the world of psychedelic medicine. During our interview with Erica, she mentions her interactions with Dr. Roland Griffiths, professor of psychiatry and neurosciences at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the founding director of the Johns Hopkins Center on Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Dr. Griffiths has authored over 400 journal articles and book chapters on these subjects and is widely regarded as one of the world's leading experts on psychedelics and psilocybin specifically. Here's our conversation with Erica Rex. Yes, thank you. My name is Erica Rex and I'm a journalist and writer and I took part in the second clinical trial that was ever done to treat cancer-related depression at Johns Hopkins University Behavioral Pharmacology Research Unit. And that study started in about 2010. And I was in the study in 2012 and the results were published in 2016. 
So you've written and spoken extensively about your experience with PAT, psilocybin-assisted therapy, in a clinical setting. And so I think it would be nice for our listeners to hear what your experience was like and how it feels all these years later in reflecting back on that experience. Clinical trial protocols are really strict. I found out about the study very accidentally because I was writing an article about some scientific brain research coming out of Imperial College, which was uh, brain imaging using fMRI to scan what brains actually did on psilocybin. And it was during the time I was interviewing Robin Carhart-Harris, who was the author of that study. And while we were talking, he said, oh, by the way, there are actual clinical trials being done with this now. Have you spoken with Charlie Grove? Have you spoken with Roland Griffiths? And I said, I didn't realize that it was back in the in the clinic, it's very strange. And I spoke with Roland and 10 minutes into the interview, I said to Roland, then I would like to refrain this conversation because I would like to apply for the study. And so that ended up being an interestingly complex thing about what I was writing and then whether it was going to be appropriate for me to be in the study. And so I filled out all the questionnaires and eventually it was accepted for the first go round. So prior to even going, there were lots of questionnaires about psychological states and various other things because they have to screen up people who have any sign of schizoaffective disorder because there is some evidence, although it's controversial, whether psychedelics are appropriate for schizoaffective disorders at all, period, separate from whether they're therapeutic for depression. So they had to screen that up. Then once I got there, I had to still have the whole medical workup and the whole psychological workup where they, they do in person. It was a serious drawing and quartering that lasted many days. The sort of psychology, psychiatry, um, mental state cadre is at least five people big. And each of those people interviews you multiple times over multiple days. And on top of that, there's a physical workup, which is the most thorough physical workup I've had before or since, frankly. Blood tests, EKG, every possible dimension that you can imagine. And then I had the first dose, and then I stayed a couple more days, and then I went back to England, and then a month later, we repeated the process. So... You were able to do this experience or you were screened positively and you were then enrolled to actually have a psilocybin assisted therapy. Can you tell us, and again, I know this was in 2012, so it's a while ago, but I think it would be useful to hear what it felt like and what it was like with the guide that was with you at the time. The way they do it, at least at Hopkins, was that they're very, you know, spiritual. The whole team there are meditators. Everybody meditates and are very, very dedicated. Roland himself to uh, Vipassana meditation practice and then other people to various kinds. And I was already, yeah, somewhat of a meditator. One of the things we did before, for days on end, every several times a day, was we would have little meditations. And when the day of the first session comes, it's quite, I wouldn't say ritualized, but yeah, there's a ritual and it's partly ritualized so that the protocol is exactly followed. There's a three of us or four of us are in there. So like two guides, Roland, 
gave me the capsule. There was a cup of water poured. Everybody had to make sure that I drank a whole cup of water. And then there's a sofa and eye shades and there's a music track that I had heard several times then because we rehearse. One of the things that happens is rehearsal to get comfortable with being in the room, get comfortable with being the guides, to get comfortable hearing music, wearing headphones and an eye mask. Because this is an internal experience, not an external experience. And um, then I sat in with my guide and we looked at some pictures in a book and you can bring things in to look at as you're finding your way to this different space. There's a thought or an idea, and it's true actually, that if you look at images of nature as you're entering this other state of consciousness, that it actually enhances or helps, it helps the transition. And when I started feeling sort of dizzy and funny, I laid down and eye shades and mask. I, I realized that it's a very long and rich experience that, you know, from what we've read, it's six to eight hours. But if we were trying to present an idea for a listener, is there a way to talk about what it was like on the trip itself? I think it's so individual. And I would paraphrase something that Roland said, which is, you don't know what you're going to encounter or why. And the point is to be able to ask the question when it confronts you, whether it's scary or awful or wonderful or beautiful, to go in with the idea, what is it teaching me? So some people have used the metaphor of being on a canoe, going down the river, and you don't know how the river is going to be rapids, going to a beautiful lagoon, the river is going to be the river and you're on the canoe, but you can't decide to get off until it's done. And the, the people who do the worst, who do not do well, or the couple of people who really do not do well are people who are serious control freaks, but you have to just be on the canoe. All kinds of things happen that, that are unexpected, beautiful things, not so beautiful things things that become useful metaphors for life. And um, yeah, the point is that it is a journey. It is the experience itself that is part of what is transformative. After the trial, did you feel things shifting in the way that you saw it and felt and approached the world? I, I did. It took a while. It didn't happen instantly. And I would say the most important thing is a perceptual shift away from this grinding inability to get away with an obsession about what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes or the next few months or whatever, that some sort of a door opens, you could say, to where suddenly other possibilities just might be there. In your own experience, you said that it continued to grow. It sounds like that it yeah. took a while for those mm -hmm. changes to bear fruit. Yes, were. Yeah. And then, so then I have to say that one of the big problems, and this is more than a detail and it, it needs to be addressed more than clinical trials do it. There's, there's writing and evidence that people who have what is called a transcendent peak experience, where they have a complete sense of dissolution and one with the universe and all that, are the ones who do the best and have the best outcomes. In that assessment, what happens and what happened, I, I'm fairly certain at Hopkins more than once 
was that people were insanely disappointed when they didn't have that experience. I did not have that experience. And I was disappointed when I was getting back on the planes after my second um, dose. And I was very lucky. I had someone who was a researcher at another university who I had spoken with who had said, if you want to talk while you're waiting for the plane, call me. I probably talked to him for two and a half hours. And we had to talk about this fact and what it meant. And I've since talked with my former guide about that setting people up for the idea that this transcendence peak experience is the thing is not good. What I hear you saying is that even if you don't have that quote unquote one peak experience, that it can still have an incredibly powerful effect on you. And Mm-hmm. Right. And it's unfortunate that the literature is not perhaps reflecting enough that nuance in, in the eagerness, right, to, yeah. I, I think, and we've spoken to psychiatrists who are understandably so frustrated with the lack of movement in um, modern psychopharmacology and nothing's working for lots of people. And so there's this excitement and sometimes that over exuberance perhaps doesn't allow for that nuance to come out and, in the or that's pharmaceutical model that the, the pill does this and then this thing happens and then you're cured it's just hogwash and i mean i don't you know think that this should be in the hands of, of psychiatrists at all so frankly mm-hmm. so whose hands would you put it into i would put it in the hands of people who are very community-based people who are well-trained, like maybe social workers, people who are used to dealing with people where they are and not trying to medicalize everything that happened to them or is happening to them. In fact, group, even group scenarios work more, more like the original concept, right? These were shamanistic rites. It wasn't just one person. The shaman was a healer. But there were maybe several people that needed helping with something. And so they were together in the experience. They may not have interacted. And then they were together in many different ways after the experience. It's very helpful. It's, it has the potential, at least, to be a built-in community to process. Whether mm-hmm. yes, Yeah. So given that your experience was in 2012 and, and we're now in 2022, how do you reflect upon where you are today versus the week before you had your guided experience? And how are those two states of being different or the same? I was in a very bad place in 2012. There's no question about it. And after I had the two sessions, I went back to England And I was not doing well because I was isolated again. And as a way of supporting me, the study had my guide call me every month or every couple of weeks. And and they really had to push me to try and find a support system, which I was having a very hard time doing. I did eventually find a breast cancer support charity that offered lots of support kind of things classes, mindfulness meditation, a woman you could talk to, people who could help with things like finances, practical life stuff. Then I began to improve and it took a while. I began working more. I made some decisions and I was doing fairly okay 
for a number of years, not perfectly, but I have to say that about this time last year, back February, March of last year, I really tanked. And I went back to a place that I had been once I had cancer and it was not good. Many of us actually have experienced depression and existential distress. So we understand, and it's very difficult and often intransigent. And that's one of the reasons why we're so fascinated with PAT, because at least it, it seems from what we've been finding or hearing about is that it's durable and sustainable. And I'm sorry that it's not, has not proven to be that way for you. Well, um, it's a long time. I was about to say, it's not, it's, you've got to put this in perspective. I went through the study in 2012 and it wasn't until COVID hit and I was stranded in Paris in an apartment that belongs to a very dear friend of mine. Fortunately, it was empty that I could stay in and I did not do well and I had to get some help and I'm doing better. We are so appreciative of you spending time talking to us. You have this very unique perspective in that you're a journalist as well as someone who's experienced this in a clinical study. And so given your understanding of the PAT landscape in both the United States, where you were part of the clinical study, but also in Europe, where you've been living, what practical or strategic advice would you offer for any metastatic person dealing with the existential distress or clinical depression and anxiety that can come from a diagnosis like this? There are no clinical trials in France. They can't get a psilocybin trial off the ground to save their lives. There are a number of people I talked to at great length who've been trying to do this and it's not happened. It's sad. So the couple of, of patients I know here who have found relief have gone to under and yeah, find a really, really good member of the underground who's very reputable and work with them. Be very, very careful about how and through what means you choose them, but they are out there and the ones who are good are very good. That's the way I think it's going to be for a long time. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that you might want to share with someone living with cancer, seeking help with kind of the emotional distress that comes along with it? The more kind of social support and connectivity that you can possibly have in your rights, the better, because that was what really lacked for me. And I actually think that is as important uh, as having a drug experience, it's useless if you don't go into a community or space where that experience is going to be supported. And I have said this over and over every time I ever speak to anybody or in any venue, is that the drug is an accelerant. And that's all it is. That the therapeutic experience is the result and must be dealt with a more important part. Right. It looks like you take a box of matches. It's not the fire and it's not the gathering around the fire. So box of matches. Yeah. So taking it back down to an individual level, given everything you've read and all that you've done, would you still recommend psilocybin-assisted therapy for somebody with cancer? Absolutely. I think it should be accessible to anyone with cancer and especially people at end of life. I think everyone should have the opportunity to have it, no matter how they get it. 
whatever way. Thanks for joining us today. We hope this episode provided some insight into what psilocybin-assisted therapy can be like for those patients who have access to it. In Canada, interested patients should contact Theracil directly to learn more about the special access program. In the U.S., participation in clinical trials remains the primary pathway for legal access. Because open trials are so few, the evidence so promising, and our needs so great, however, there remains a need for other legal and safe pathways. Please join us next week as we cover two current legal actions seeking to expand access to psilocybin-assisted therapy to those of us who are living with advanced cancer. We also talk about the advocacy opportunities that exist for those who are interested in becoming involved. This podcast was produced by Dr. Paula Jane, Linda Weatherby, and myself, Lisa Laudico. This NBC and Psilocybin series benefits from original music by Connor Kinsley. We received help from Bill Smith for sound engineering. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RNBC Life Wherever you get your podcasts, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every week. Check out our blog and our full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.